Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. Welcome to Season 2 of Kitchen Table Magic, and there's a ton of amazing people here this season. I'm super stoked to be sharing their stories with you. In this episode, I'm talking to Tim Shields, tournament organizer and founder of Cascade Games. Tim and his crew puts on a myriad of different large-scale events, such as Comic-Cons, MTG Grand Prix, events for PAX, as well as events for DreamHack. As a community, we don't get to hear very often from tournament organizers, so I'm very grateful that Tim was able to find time during his busy schedule to share his stories with us. I hope you enjoy my interview with Tim Shields. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I am here today with Tim Shields, tournament organizer and owner of Cascade Games. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here today. We are sitting in the Oregon Convention Center, second week of August in the summer at in the middle of GP Portland right now. We're in day two of the main event. So it's Sunday and things are going very, very well. Yeah, there's a lot of cosplayers here today. There are tons of players. I was so happy. We had scheduled um, 20 cosplayers. I think we ended up with a final number of 18 cosplayers. And some of them are very, very good. That's right. We saw Nicole Bolas, which is Christine Sprankle. And we also saw Venzer and Gideon. Yeah, again, Gideon. Um, Kiora. There were several Jaces. Uh, what else have we seen this weekend? I saw Gerolf. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And it's super fun having having all the cosplayers here. That's one of my favorite things over in Magic. Years ago, we just didn't have cosplayers coming to events. And now, as we're focusing more and more on the community fo- this community side of Grand Prix, we're able to bring in the cosplayers. And it's, uh, it's just fabulous. That is awesome. And great news so far. I've been down in the tournament area and lots of players very happy. It's been, the feedback is very positive. The tournament is run very smoothly and timing them through the rounds are also very good. You know, the credit for that really is with the judges. The judge core that supports us in running events is absolutely fantastic. Sean Cantonese is our head judge, uh, this weekend and he is, he, he came down from Seattle to help us out. He's fantastically skilled, and I'm so grateful to to all of the judges who are putting in so much time this weekend. I love it. Tim, I just wanted to start in the beginning. How did you start doing tournament organizing? So I started out with a comic book store. I had a comic book store in downtown Olympia, and as Magic came out, I fell in love with magic. So I didn't actually get any alpha cards. I, so I started at beta mm-hmm. and I fell in love with magic. And every night at my store, we would stay open till three, four. Sometimes we'd just stay open all night and play magic. And that naturally led into running s- small store based events. And then my first formal event, um, what, so my first formal event outside of my store, we were only able to get a few boxes of legends and we, the community center, um, just a couple blocks away was kind enough to let us have some space and we ran a magic tournament and I truly had no idea what I was doing at all then. Uh huh. None at all, but it was a blast. That's awesome. And what year was that? Oh my gosh. I'd have to go look that up. Legends had just come up. So that's how I got started. And then, um, 
fairly quickly after that, I started interviewing and was hired at Wizards of the Coast. And I helped them, I helped them get going with what we now think of as the organized play system. Mm-hmm. I was principally focused on, on a league, which we, which was called the Arena League. Mm-hmm. And so we, we rolled out a, a, a store based system of league play all over the world. And then I helped out with a, a project where we built the game center in Seattle, which was a, which was a very lavish, very fun, environment to play games and had a very large tournament center. And eventually, after a couple of years, I had finished, I was going to school as well, and I had finished my graduate degree. And I left Wizards and moved back to my home, which is Portland. And I was assuming that I was just going to put away my games for a while. And I just had the bug. And so, Uh I opened up another store in Portland and... Then when there was an opportunity to become a PTO in, in in Oregon, I was like, oh, sure, that sounds like fun. I'll do that. But I really never had any intention of it becoming any anything bigger than that. And so when was that shift or that level up moment for you where you had broken this glass ceiling or broken a barrier? I don't think there's ever any particular moment for me. It's just it has been a very gradual process where, for instance, my company's called Cascade Games, right? Based on that, I really never expected to run events outside of the Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. right, where people know where the Cascade Mountain Range is. And now I, I, I have certainly run events in lots of places and had, you know, trying to tell pe- people want to know what a Cascade is, right? Right. So it has just grown incrementally step by step. And, you know, there's never been there's never been a plan for it to grow. It just happens. It just did. It just did. Yes. I really think about this in terms of how can I make players happy? How can I, you know, how can I make my client, whichever company I'm working for happy? And they come to me from time to time and ask me to do do a project. And I almost always say yes. And it goes from there. Tim, tell us a little bit more about what goes into putting on a large event like this. A huge amount of work. <laughs> Grand Prix are incredibly complicated. Probably the easiest way to talk about the work that goes into this is chronological. The first step is to find a venue. So a publisher will come and say, hey, we'd like you to do an event in the in a particular state, and they give us a date range. And then we start looking for a convention center. In Oregon, that's super easy because there's one place that I love. The Oregon Convention Center is is beautiful and it's it it just works for us. So after after I, you know, make sure the date works for the publisher, we pay for the convention center, which is, you know, which is a significant part of the event, right? It's <laughs> it's quite it, it, it's quite spendy and it's really but you've got to lock that down early. And then um I and my staff will work on a floor plan. We'll we'll have a, a bunch of brainstorming meetings to try and figure out what can we like every event we try and come up with something that's going to be special or different, right? There's so Grand Prix, of course, we know how the main event works. We know a bunch of things that are going to be on, uh, you know, on the side event schedule, but we're always trying to figure out what's going to make this one special. And so for Portland, you know, Portland's a very community focused town. So we thought, let's bring in a bunch of artists. And in truth, I, I love magic art. So, so for me, that's a, that's an area of focus. Let's bring in some cosplayers and then let's, let's have a little hook that seems fun. Mm-hmm. Right. 
So Jones Soda is a is a smaller local manufacturer of soda. And they were kind enough to agree to take magic art. And again, it's the art from the playmat we're using at this event. And we, and we took a, a red soda and, and called it Soren's Thirst. And so far, the players are really liking that. And I like it too. And the flavor is good. I think it's strawberry limeade or something like yes, that. Yes. Yes. It's strawberry limeade. So, <laughs> so for every Grand Prix, we try and figure out a couple things that are going to be fun. And then we, um, we start trying to get the word out and we start recruiting judges and staff. And for a Grand Prix like this, we have about 120 people on staff. Mm -hmm. right? Most everyone I work with is either currently a judge or formerly a judge. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's a very large team effort. Then after, you know, in terms of preparation, we try and design a look and feel. We obviously have to work with the fire marshal to make sure everything's going to, going to be okay. And, um, and eventually we come to the point where we open the doors. Tim, so the components of a big tournament are judges. We need wizards of the coast. Yep. We need coverage. Yep. We need vendors. Yep. We need artists. Yep. And then there's also cosplayers. Yep. And then there's also staff. Absolutely. And of course, us, the players. Sure. <laughs> Anything else? Well, you know, there's a ton of logistical things that I don't know if it's important to talk about, but the people side is, is, a, is obviously is crucial, right? But there's so many physical things, right? You need enough tables and chairs. You need to get the most comfortable chairs you can. You need power drops um, as we're trying to step up the quality of coverage. We're using more and more power. Um, we're, you know, our, we've got to get internet. It's got, we've got to get something that's stable and stays up. We need to have a lounge for our VIPs. In this case, we have two VIP lounges, which is super fun. One is, you know, on the same level as the players. And then one is two stories up so they can look through a glass window down at the play. So um, the prize wall is one of the most complicated aspects of the tournament for years. I don't know, for 15 plus years, I was running tournaments and now it's just embarrassing to think about this, but I was trying to guess what the players wanted in terms of a prize. And you know, the truth is sometimes I was right. Sometimes I was wrong, but it was always imprecise. Actually, we got the idea from running a Kaijudo event and then actually going to places that use tickets like Chuck E. Cheese and the County Fair and things like that, right? Because what we, well, what we do now is when you play in your tournament, you win tickets and uh, we call them ticks for short. And so you take your ticks over to the prize wall and we have several thousand different objects on the prize wall, single cards, booster packs, um, going way back, uh, you know, San Diego Comic-Con Planeswalker sets, what, you know, whatever, whatever I can possibly get that seems neat. Um, uncut sheets. I mean, I, I can't list them all because there are literally thousands of objects and keeping track of that or keeping it stocked, making, you know, making it presentable. I mean, we're really, we're really setting up a small store, only nothing's for sale. It's all for tickets. Yes. And the, so far, the players have, have the player reaction has been overwhelmingly positive. And they're showing that to me two ways. They tell me, hey, I just got this thing and I love it. And so we don't have the mismatch of people getting the wrong prize for, for a particular player. And then, of course, side event attendance has gone up significantly as well. 
And I think that many people who, many of the smaller, you know, smaller or even larger game stores are going to start doing this as well. Cause it's just, it just makes more sense for folks to get the prize that they want. For years, we'd give away uncut sheets and there are, and some players love uncut sheets and other players, frankly, aren't interested in them at all. And the last event I did in Albuquerque, one of the guys who got an uncut sheet was literally dancing with joy. Oh, wow. He was so happy. Now I don't have something that I think is a cool prize going to players who don't want it or vice versa. So it's great. Yeah. I saw a player with some really cool aluminum cut dice. And I was like, where did you get those? And he was like, I got it at the prize wall. And I literally jolted up from my seat. We weren't in a match. I jolted up from a seat, ran over to the prize wall, and I got some. We had several sets of those, although not a huge amount. Ultra Pro sometimes sponsors our prize wall. And they were they were able to to get us a few of them. They're, uh, they're, they're amazing dice. They really are. And they are precisely balanced um you can actually balance them on the edges of the dice they're phenomenal that's amazing yeah so a lot goes into running a large tournament like this and it really makes or breaks the player experience i've been on the floor and people have just big smiles on their faces i wish i could take credit for this stuff but the truth is how i've learned how to be a tournament organizer is by making mistakes right and I've done nearly everything wrong that a person can do wrong. <laughs> I just, I'm, I just, you know, we've learned over time and, and sometimes the, the, the venue doesn't work for it, but you know, we need big aisles in the middle. We need to keep tournaments moving. We've done everything we can to eliminate lines. I'm sure there's more we can do and learn over, over time, but we're as a team. And, you know, I keep saying we, cause it's not me. It is, it's a group of people who are all, who are all working together to make this happen. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. So yeah, Tim, a lot goes into putting on an event like this. There's a lot of moving pieces, but also could you share with us a little bit about the state of the tournament kind of on the West Coast? Sure. And, you know, my perspective is very much on the larger tournaments, right? It's important to remember that the vast majority of players are playing in their local stores, right? Local game stores over the years have become more and more the heart of where tournaments are. And as someone who used to be, a, you know, a, a local store owner, I like a lot of things about it. The state of the tournaments on the level where I'm working um, is really in flux. Our events, particularly Grand Prix, but, you know, everything has been growing so quickly. And there's definitely some growing pains as well as some just incredibly awesome parts to us. So our tournaments are growing to the point where they don't fit in many of the convention centers. Oh, wow. So I started out in Portland and then I expanded and started and started doing events in Seattle. And virtually every tournament I did in Seattle was in Seattle Center. Mm -hmm. It's a great venue. There's lots of room. There's lots of buildings. And we literally outgrew Seattle Center. You know, my first Grand Prix there, I couldn't imagine that we could ever fill the hall. And in truth, we had almost 400 people. And I thought that was amazing. And that was as big as this could possibly get. And now our tournaments don't fit there. We moved down into Tacoma, uh, to the Tacoma Convention Center. And in truth, the last Grand Prix in the SeaTac area, um, we maxed out the room, right? We, we literally sold out the Grand Prix, you know, and that on one hand, that's great that we sold it out, but I need more room for more players. And so we ended up 
filling up the entire ballroom on the top floor with the main event. And then our VIP lounge was on uh, one floor down and we had overflow events and drafts on the, on the entry level. And so as I think about places to hold events, Tacoma has been maxed out. There aren't good venues in, in the state of Washington right now. Like Bellevue, Linwood, they're all too they're small. They're too small. They're all too small. And the only one that's, there's two different options, right? There's, the Washington State Convention Center, which there's a bunch of logistical reasons why that doesn't work out very well. And then there's a there right next to the sports stadiums, there's a a very large convention center that would work pretty well, except we have to find a weekend where there's no baseball, no football, and no soccer. Which is impossible. Which is impossible. So we're, you know, we're a little bit of a victim of success, right? These events and I mean the entire Grand Prix program is they're all growing to the point where it's getting harder and harder to find good venues for it. Unfortunately, we've lost some tournaments too as the Grand Prix have been growing. Unfortunately, Star City used to do a lot of a lot of the events that you know I think of as middle size, right? They're much larger than would fit in a store, but they're smaller than Grand Prix. Although some of their events got very close to the size of Grand Prix and still do, um, but they've they've pulled out of the West Coast, and so there's a there's a little bit of a gap for competitive magic. I think some of the stores have been trying to step up to fill that gap. You know, we've certainly talked about it and explored that option, but I, you know, I can't, I can't make any promises. It's something that would be neat, but time will tell. Where I'm really focused right now is on the convention side of things. Mm -hmm. My team's done San Diego Comic-Con and Anime Expo and several other conventions for years. And I think there's a real opportunity to, especially for the more casual players, who are at conventions to reach out and say, Hey, you used to play magic years ago here, come back. It's a ton of fun right now. And I think we'll be able to expand into that um, pretty effectively. That's awesome. Well, you know, there's so many conventions and the conventions have been growing, particularly, you know, the pop culture, you know, comic book shows, but you know, and, and I'm a, I should say, I started out as a comic book retailer. I love comic books, but I want to help the show step up a little bit because after a day of walking the floor and that's fun, but a lot of them, there's not a good reason to come back for Saturday and Sunday. And if we have a lot of really cool tournaments and leagues and, and artists and, you know, and everything else that we can do, hopefully we'll be able to bring pa people back for the second and third day and then give the people who are coming to those conventions, some, you know, some fun things to do. Absolutely. That sounds like a fantastic way of thinking about it. So my hope is to get up to doing 20 or so conventions um, by the end of 2017, and we'll see what happens from there. How many do you do in 2015 and 2016? Let's see. I'm going to have to count really quick. So I did DreamHack, which is an esports festival. I did PAX Prime South and East, uh, San Diego Comic-Con. So we're at five, uh, six with Anime Expo. Um, Emerald City Comic Con, Rose City Comic Con. You know, there's, I'm probably missing one or two. So let's say we did 10. Okay. So we're going to double. And then, you know, and then I hope we'll double again. Wow. So you don't put on packs. You don't put on Emerald no. City, but no. you, you I, organize. So let's say you had a, you had the desire to, to run a convention, which hopefully someday you will. Right? <laughs> so you have a convention and you need things for people to do. And so I go to conventions and I'm like, hey, you guys have lots of players and probably you have some extra space, right? Because, 
convention centers come in odd shapes and sizes, right? Right. And you usually have to rent them in 30 to 60,000 square foot blocks. Like, so you've got some extra space. You know, I'd be delighted to bring in, to bring in games. So that way your players can be happy and everybody can have fun. And that's my pitch. And usually the conventions are pretty receptive because, you know, they really want people, they want their attendees to have fun. They want as much stuff as they can do. And if they can bring people back for a second and third day of fun, it just, it builds a convention for everybody. That makes a lot of sense. I have a lot of players asking me, why aren't there more events up here in the West Coast or the Pacific Northwest? Well, you know, the the truth is, it really is an economic issue. Okay. I think a lot of players don't know how how the economics of tournaments work. If you break down with a spreadsheet and start looking at the cost of venues and the cost of staff, because of course we pay our staff, and the cost of whatever, you know, packs of magic, usually in order to make this work, someone has to be subsidizing the event. So in the case of a Grand Prix, we have retailers who are who are paying for space. And that really is what allows us to deliver these kind of events. You know, there's a ton of judges flying in from all over the country. The judges are amazing, but we really do need help. And, you know, the Star City events are fantastic and the card sells um, help subsidize their events. But of course, for me, I'm not a retailer. I haven't been for I haven't been a retailer for years. You know, in truth, I really like having somebody else play that retail role because, you know, I'm, I, I've got more than enough projects on my plate already. But the problem is that it's, it's very hard to make this pencil out. So especially if you add tra- travel onto the cost, right? Um, if you need to get the equipment to run, to run a larger event, um, it's just, it's very risky and very exp- expensive to get it into the right place at the right time. And the learning curve is, is, is very difficult as well. And so if we didn't have that obstacle, we'd see more stores as, you know, stores try and step up and it, it happens pretty frequently and they'll do, uh, they'll do a larger event. They'll do a 5k. Sometimes you even see a 10k, although much less in the Northwest than some of the other areas of the country, but we don't see people going past that level very often because it's, it's just, it's tremendously difficult to make the numbers work. And so when I talk about doing events at conventions, the truth is it's partially subsidized by the convention. Um, they're helping out. They're either giving me discounted space or helping us out in some other way so that we can keep their players happy. And I want to do everything I can to build the magic community, but it's just logistically very hard to make this work. Mm-hmm. And Grand Prix occupy this really amazing spot in, in the ecosystem because Grand Prix are so large that we don't have to go to a convention. Grand Prix really are a convention. Yes. We've been pushing the boundaries more and more in that direction. It used to be that a typical Grand Prix had one, maybe two artists. A typical Grand Prix would have, you know, some of them had coverage, some of them didn't. Um, they would have two or three vendors. And now for this Grand Prix, we have 12 vendors. I think our final count was 14 artists. Um, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a very different kind of thing. My sense is it feels much more like a convention than, than strictly a tournament. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, that's been part of my answer to try and help build organized plays. Let's turn Grand Prix into conventions focused on magic. 
Tim, can you share some interesting or memorable stories about your journey on this tournament organizing train? My job at Grand Prix and at most of the events, I'm not the one handling the logistics. The folks who either are or for, are formerly judges are much, much better than that. We usually refer to my job as fighting fires. Right? <laughs> so I'm going around the room looking for challenges, looking for problems and solving them before they turn into a uh, into a big deal. So if an aisle is too crowded or, you know, if if there's a customer service issue, those are the things that I attend to. Last time we had Grand Prix Portland, though. Um, I literally turned into a firefighter uh-huh. in some areas of the country. They decorate flower beds with decorative rock or other, you know, other things in the Northwest. We use shaved pieces of wood called bark dust, right? Yes. So we've got a lot of bark dust and people are coming in from all over the country and they don't necessarily know, you know, some folks smoke. I wish you wouldn't, but some folks are going to smoke. And if you come from, you know, a desert area, you might, after you're done smoking, throw your cigarette into the decorative rock. I know you're not supposed to, but it might happen. In the Northwest, there's this really remarkable thing that happens if you throw your cigarette into a flower bed full of bark dust <laughs> and you get a little teeny tiny scorch mark usually it's not much bigger than a silver dollar where there's a scorch mark but then what happens is the fire actually goes straight down and it usually goes down about six inches underground and then it spreads underground in the flower bed until as and as it's spreading the flower bed begins to steam and smoke because of course it's the northwest so there's a lot of moisture in the ground and then what will happen is all at once, as the temperature rises, the entire flower bed will burst on fire. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And luckily, there was a hose right there, and we got the fire out even before the fire department arrived. But uh, yes, so that's a reminder. Don't smoke. But if you're going to smoke, really, really don't throw your cigarettes in, in the flower beds. That's crazy. That's too funny. And these things don't happen very often, but there is always something crazy or, or, or just going, going a little bit off schedule. Uh, when we were at Anime Expo just a few weeks ago, there was a pipe that burst overnight. And luckily, all of our materials, all of our printers and everything were actually in plastic tubs because when we came in, they were floating. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, the convention center got it taken care of before any of the players got in that morning. And um, and there was no there was no actual damage um, that there was one binder. There was one binder on the prize wall that got a little bit of water on it, but everything just floated up. And we only we probably only had a few inches of water, but but still, you, when you walk in in the morning and see all the tubs of printers floating, it's pretty dramatic. That's incredible because there could have been a simple decision to not put them in plastic tubs or put them in something, and they, everything would have been ruined. Well, and and it's not like we put everything in plastic tubs every day. It <laughs> just happened that everything on the floor was in a plastic tub. We lucked out, and it all floated. Sometimes people look at my job and they think, oh, that's not very hard. Anybody could do that. And in truth, anybody can do my job. I've just been fortunate to be doing it for long enough that I've made all of the mistakes. Boy, I can't say all the mistakes because I'm sure I'll make more, but I've made a bunch of mistakes and hopefully we're learning from them as a team. Hopefully. Tim, it's very interesting that you're sharing kind of like the past and present of tournament organizing. Tim, what do you see in the future of tournament organizing and large events? 
You know what? I like to try and get a, a look at what the future is going to be for tournaments and events. I like to go to two shows. I really like PAXs. I have a great time there. And I also have been going to DreamHack, which is an esports festival. And we're starting to, to run some magic there. In fact, you know what? I think, can I make an announcement of that course. I haven't told anybody? I have not, in fact, told anybody this, but we're, we're going to do a $10,000 cash prize event at the next DreamHack Austin. And going to an esports festival is a really nice way to see where we're going. The skills in the trading card game world in terms of how to run an event are really important, right? We're able to do things like Grand Prix Vegas's where, you know, where there's 10,000 people playing at the same time. So we're able to do very large events. But what we haven't done yet is really incorporate electronics into our, our events. And as more and more of the publishers are coming out with electronic versions of their games, I think there's always going to be a place for paper games. In fact, what, I, what we've seen so far is having a digital game strengthens the, the paper version, right? Duels of the Planeswalker brought a ton of people into Magic. That's true for all of the other digital games. I suspect that what we're going to see, though, is a, a mix of where tournaments are a mix of over in one area. This is where your dig, a pure digital experience is happening. In another, there's a traditional paper experience. And then we'll also do hybrid events as well. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I imagine we're going to come up with interesting scoring systems where you get a certain number of points for your digital, you get a certain number of points for your physical. I think over time, we'll also find a way, you know, Pokemon Go is such a fascinating game, right? And having an augmented layer on top of physical reality, there are going to be so many neat games. But as a Pokemon Go player, I can tell you my experience is I had a lot of fun at first, and now I'm gradually losing interest because there's not, sometimes people call it a context layer, a meaning layer put on top of it. Sure, you know, you can go take the gym, but what you can't do yet is play in a way that you have a ranking, that you have a rating. For PAX, we're going to be doing some Pokemon events, and we're talking about doing the equivalent of scavenger hunts and seeing how quickly you can level up some of your, um, you know, level up some of your, your Pokemon account. Can you, how long does it take you to find particular kinds of Pokemon? And we're, I think we'll see things like that for many, if not all of the game publishers. And, and I can't wait. Fascinating. That's really something exciting to look forward to. Physical magic has some real advantages over digital. Bringing people together face to face is just powerful. And if we can take the techniques from face to face gameplay from physical tournaments and then reach out to the kind of numbers of, of people who are playing these digital games, we can create amazing play experiences. You know, years ago, I was going to San Diego Comic-Con when it was, you know, 30,000 people. And now they sell out, you know, in a matter of an hour or two, and they sell out more than 120,000 badges. I see a world, cross my fingers, hopefully I'll still, you know, I'm, I'm old, but hopefully I'll still be part of it. I see a world coming where our magic events, where we're not saying, hey, that's 10,000 players. That's crazy large. I see a world where we're having 100,000 person magic events. And those aren't going to look exactly like we, what we do now. But right now, if we're able to bring in, you know, 12 artists or 14 artists for a Grand Prix, imagine what we can do for an artist alley when we have 100,000 people. 
Imagine what we can do if a, an event like Grand Prix Portland can support a prize wall of a couple thousand items. If we have a hundred thousand people in a room, we could do the most amazing stuff. So I, I hope I'm lucky enough to be part of that future and we'll see what happens. Tim, I wanted to ask you, how many cases of the most recent sets of boosters like Eldritch Moon or Shadows of Innistrad does a GP go through in one weekend? You know, honestly, I don't count it in cases. I count it in pallets. Oh, my goodness. And let's just say it's a lot. Hey, can I tell a funny story? Sure. Okay. So, before pre-releases were a store-based event, there would be one tournament organizer holding a pre-release in each state. That meant we were going through an awful lot of magic. Mm -hmm. And there was a week where I kept calling Wizards of the Coast and saying, you know, the pre-release is coming and I don't have my palette for the Pacific Northwest yet. And they would say, any day, any day. And then it turned out that there was a shipping error and it had gone to the wrong side of the country. And it was the day before the pre-release. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, in this case, there would probably be 800 to 1,000 unique people in Seattle and six to 800 players in Portland. And I was, I was imagining having to tell all of those people personally, I'm sorry, you've come all this way, but I don't have cards for you. And so Wizards of the Coast was kind enough to help me out. They air freighted a pallet to me, which is only twice in my life have I had pallets air freighted to me. Oh my goodness. And what happened though, was that they shipped them via Alaska Airlines. And I had never thought of it, but Alaska Airlines runs a lot of flights between Portland, you know, West Coast. But their primary thing is, 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 well, the name of the airline, Alaska Airlines. And so they had used a pallet. The physical wooden pallet had been used to ship salmon, specifically just harvested salmon. And so they throw some ice in, in a big container, and they throw the, uh, the salmon on the back of, you know, in, in the back cargo hold of an airplane, and it flies up and down the West Coast. Well, that meant that I walked up to the pallet, and a good 20 feet away, I was like, hmm, I don't know if I want to approach this pallet. So we <laughs> were terrified that this had affected the cards. But of course, thank goodness the cards are both shrink-wrapped and in a pack. They were all okay. And then we immediately burned the pallet. Oh, my and, goodness. And that uh, fixed that problem. The other time was for the first Grand Prix Las Vegas. The day before the Grand Prix, and this was this was an event that broke the world record for lar largest magic event today. In fact, it broke it twice. Right? Wow. What happened was we like to hold a mini master tournament before the main event, you know, the day before the main event. And we had literally a line around the building. What the players didn't know is that night, probably six o'clock in, in the evening, I had received a phone call from Wizards of the Coast that they had um, that they had discovered there had been a shipping error and all of the product was still in a warehouse in Arkansas. Oh no. And you know, I was like, okay, I'll fly to Arkansas. I'll grab a truck and I'll start driving. But I checked Google and there was no way to get it there in time. Even if, if I grabbed two guys, we drove around the clock. It still wouldn't get there in time. Oh no. Like if anybody doubts wizards of the coast commitment to organized play, here's what they did. They went out well after business hours, they chartered a jet and they air freighted a jet full of product to us. And the jet 
because they can't unload cargo in the Las Vegas airport, they had to bring it into Los Angeles airport. They had a truck waiting on the tarmac and they took it straight from the, from the jet into the truck. The truck started driving and I had asked the truck driver, I said, you know, I understand it's the middle of the night, but please give me a call every 30 minutes because I'm going to be awake anyway because I'm sweating bullets. And about three o'clock in the morning, he stopped calling me. He stopped answering his cell phone. And so I was sweating and I didn't know if we were actually going to get the product or not. And I'm just standing there crossing my fingers. When the truck arrived, it didn't have a lift gate. And no one from the facility was there. There was no loading dock, no lift gate. And we had to get all of these pallets of magic off the back of the truck. And luckily, one of my judges, because again, the judges are amazing people. And this was Kyle Knutson. He actually has a forklift license. And the center had left the, the keys in the forklift. And so I'm like, you know what? We got to do what we got to do. And so Kyle unloaded the truck with the forklift and the first batch from the forklift went straight in into the product room. We unloaded it from the forklift tines and took it straight out to the players. And the truck got there 15 minutes before the mini master. The players didn't know, but we came so close to having to delay that event or even cancel it. And we started mostly on time. Oh my goodness. The day before when I had found that out, I went to my judges. I'm like, okay, guys, I need you to not have an emotional reaction. When I tell you something, remember you have confidentiality agreements. I need options. You guys have 45 minutes to come up with a, with an answer and I'll come back for it. I'm like, okay, so how do we hold the largest magic event in history if we don't have any magic cards? And I came back. And they said, okay, here's our plans. So what you'll do, Tim, is you'll stand on the main stage. We'll pass out a bag to every player. And inside the bag will be 60 land cards and a Sharpie and a list. You will explain to everyone that their cards will be here Monday and that we'll get them to you. But for now, we'll take a Sharpie. We'll label a proxy. Now, thank goodness this didn't happen. Again, it did not happen. But we almost had the largest proxy event in history. Oh, my goodness. Now, I never actually discussed that with Wizards. I don't know what they would have done, but there's no way I could have sent away, you know, what was it, 3,000, no, 4,000 players for with nothing, right? We had to give them a tournament. So I suspect Wizards wouldn't, wouldn't have been too excited about a, a large proxy tournament, but there was no way to swap in any other product. You know, we talked to the distributors. And there was just, there wasn't enough magic cards of any other set to, uh, to do that anywhere, you know, anywhere within a day's drive. And so I put a logistics team on figuring out the question of how do you get 4,000 Sharpies? Because of course, this is before Amazon, you know, this is before Amazon Prime or Amazon Prime now. There are not 4,000 Sharpies in a lot of cities. So we had organized teams of, of drivers, of judges who were coming in for different days where they were on standby to go to every office max and every, you know, every office depot in their city and hit everyone on the way in and just clean out towns full of Sharpies. So I am so pleased that didn't have to happen. And every, every player got their cards and it turned out okay. 
the Sharpie Mageddon that could have happened in all these different states. Oh my gosh, that's too funny. Can you imagine what would have happened to me? So actually the full plan was players first take out an envelope and fill out your shipping address so that we can mail your cards to you. <laughs> now pull out your, your land cards. Here's your deck list. Uh, begin writing the casting cost and the card title on, on your land card. You have 60 minutes. Begin. And, uh, and then I run, I run really fast. <laughs> yeah. But it, it all, it all worked out fine in the end. You know, communication's hard. Sometimes I do a poor job. Sometimes all of us do a poor job, but this is a really amazing community. And, you know, and the judges, you know, sometimes players don't understand judges or judges don't understand players or publishers or whatever, but there is every time I get to get a chance to talk with the different groups in our community, there is a tremendous amount of affection and, um, and desire to make all of this work and make this community awesome. I'm really lucky because, you know, I'm not a judge. So I'm not part of the judge community. I'm not, you know, I'm not an active player anymore. So I'm, I'm not part of that community. I'm not, you know, I, I don't work at Wizards anymore. So that's not my community. But what I get to do is I get to touch my toes into all of these different groups. And man, it's it's awesome. I'm so blessed and lucky to be able to do this. I really do have the best job in the world. Tim, thank you so much for all of your kind words and sentiments. And on behalf of the Greater Magic community, I just wanted to thank you for doing what you do, along with everyone on the team at Cascade Games for putting on this wonderful event and all the events that we've seen. It's, you know what? It's really, it really is my pleasure. I love this. And thank you for interviewing me today. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Tim Shields. He is such an awesome guy and a pillar of the MTG community. He works so hard to bring memorable experiences to us through putting on events. I'm really grateful to have Tim and Cascade Games in our community. Special thanks to Liz for setting up the interview, and also special thanks to Chris Furterer for suggesting that I go talk to Tim. For more information about Cascade Games' upcoming events, go to cascadegames.com. And also be sure to check out DreamHack 2017 in Austin, where there's going to be a $10,000 magic battle. If you're a new listener, check out Season 1. There are 22 episodes featuring many of your favorite pros and community leaders. There's 2016 world champion Brian Brown Dewan, Nathan Holt of Enter the Battlefield and Walking the Plains, streamer Numat the Nummy, Kenji Egashira. We've got meddling mage himself, Chris Pakula, the crack gate guy, Sid Blair, and also from Wizards of the Coast, Elaine Bergeau and Mark Rosewater. And to preview Season 2, I've got some promos featuring Aaron Campbell, Cedric Phillips, Rich Hagen, Brian David Marshall, and Randy Bueller. As always, I love feedback, so please let me know what you think. Drop me a line, email me, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. And drop me a line on Facebook. Just search for Kitchen Table Magic Podcast. I'm on Twitter at KTM Podcast. I'm really looking forward to this season. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. <laughs> I remember when he emailed us about the Community Super League and we were just so flattered. We were like, oh my God, Randy Bueller wants to work with you. And again, that's one of those moments where when Randy Bueller says he wants to work with you, you f work with Randy Bueller. There's just no questions asked. Everybody was like, you're going to play Dredge, aren't you? And I was like, guys, I want to show that I have range. Like, I'm not just a Dredge girl. And so the girls and I came up with this Delver list. 
and we had to turn it in. And I remember the deadline was like Wednesday evening because the Super League was on Thursday. So we had to have it turned in by Wednesday. And so I remember turning in the deck list, recording Magic Mics, and there's a message from Randy Bueller. And mind you, it's like 1130 my time. So Randy IMs me and he goes, what do you think you're doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, why aren't you playing Dredge? And I was like, Randy, I'm trying to challenge myself. I don't want to be predictable. I want to surprise people. And Randy goes, that's cute, girl, but you're here to play Dredge. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. And he's like, I know you know the deck, play Dredge. And I was like, well, I've already turned in my deck list. And he goes, um, I'm the producer. And I'm like, oh, good point. I immediately, I am the girls. And I'm like, Randy's telling us that we need to play Dredge. And if Randy's telling us we need to do it, that's probably a sign. Like he can see that it's going to be four Delver decks and it's going to be terrible. And the girls were gracious enough to be like, we're fine playing Dredge, but you have to pilot it because we know nothing about that. And we ended up playing Dredge, but I'll just never forget that conversation with Randy Bueller. He's like, what do you think you're doing? And I'm like, trying to be different, Randy. And he's like, no, 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 no. This is what you're here for. And I was like, oh, sorry. So Randy Bueller set me straight. <laughs> I'm talking to Aaron Campbell, co-host of the Girlfriend Bracket and Magic Mics. Erin is a highly popular podcaster and host. She talks about her insights as well as being a role model within the community. Erin loves to play Dredge and she occasionally plays some other decks as well. Join me for a hilarious conversation with Erin Campbell, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.